choir. Had dinner on Tuesday and met a lady who was born in the Midwest, uh, but she lived, uh, born and raised in the Midwest, but then she lived several years in California and uh, recently has come to reside in South Carolina. So we were talking about the differences. And I know some of you are very familiar with those differences because you come from some of those places. But in light of what we experienced this past week, uh, she said that when she was in the uh, Midwest, um, that all of a sudden a tornado would come up. And it was just moments before that that you were given the warning that uh, there was this uh, tornado. And so everybody would react. And in California, whenever the earthquakes would occur, you would hear the rattle, and that was basically the sign that here comes the earthquake. But in South Carolina, we sit for a week and just watch for this hurricane to come in. And she said, it's a totally different thing, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. So we pray about it, right? And so, uh, but here it comes, and I know that it's done so much damage, and um, uh, so we're mindful of those things today. But it sure is a reminder to us of just how uh, small we are. And really how control is an illusion. The things that we have control over um, are just so, so much less than we think that they are. Well, we're praying for those who've experienced death and destruction, the flooding uh, during this hur hurricane. And um, we'll continue to do that. And just so thankful for th those of you who've joined us here today. And I know many of you joining by television. And we are thinking about you and praying for you this morning. Last week we began a series here. I started preaching a series called uh, On Mission. And um, our aim really is to follow uh, Paul as he and his companions venture out on what is remembered as his second and third missionary journeys. And we started in Acts 16 last week when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke get this divine calling to come over to Macedonia. Well, today we're going to jump ahead a good bit. We're going to skip forward uh, really to the end of that third missionary journey so that we can discover or uncover how Paul came to this point, how he got to this point uh, to become the missionary that he is. Um, James, just so you know, there's a sound coming out of this monitor right up here. Uh, next week, we're going to hop right back into Acts 16 as we look at... Um, uh, Acts 16, as we look at Paul and uh, his companions as they travel to Macedonia. Um, but for now, I think it's a good detour for us to kind of skip to the end to learn a little bit about Paul. Uh, when we study the life of Jesus, we're studying deity. But no matter how admirable the other characters are that we look at in Scripture, they're all st still human. So we're going to try and peel back the layers of Paul in order to really see that he's just as human as the next person. In fact, you might discover that he's more flawed than anybody else that you know in your own life. Uh, God chose to use him, in spite of that, to be a great missionary to advance the kingdom of God around the world. Um, today we're going to be reading from Acts 22, where Paul shares his own um, conversion experience to an audience that's gathered in Jerusalem. And what we know is that at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem and to preach in the temple. And so th that was his plan um, all along. And uh, he knew that if he went there, he would likely face arrest and uh, potentially death. But nothing could turn him away from it. So as was suspected there, Paul went to the Temple Mount and a riot ensued. Um, the Gentiles at the temple were prohibited 
from going beyond that outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And as Paul was there with some companions, somebody started to stir up trouble. And they said, Paul has brought Gentiles into the inner court. They didn't call him by name, but they said this man. And so they started to riot. The people started to drag Paul from the inner court, the court of Israel, out to the court of Gentiles. They were beating him. People in the city heard what was going on. And so they started coming, and the Roman guards were the ones who stepped in and literally saved Paul's life. Uh, They dragged him out. They carried him shoulder high uh, towards the Tower of Antonia. This is a fortress that Herod had built at the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. And he took him there. They carried him up the steps. And there the military tribune announced to Paul, you've been arrested. Now they thought Paul was an Egyptian there to stir up trouble. So Paul began to respond to them, and they realized he's not an Egyptian. Who is he? And he asked, can I please address my fellow countrymen here? And so that's what he uh, began to do. And in his speech, Paul simply tells the story of how he became the Paul that was there preaching or speaking on those steps that day. And he began to speak in Aramaic, and that's the heart language, really, of the, Jerusalem's, of the Jews living in Jerusalem at that de- time. And he immediately shows respect to them by referring to them as brothers and fathers. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16, but I'm only going to read verses 1 through 8. So uh, Acts 22, verses 1 through 8. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly, according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. So in this passage, Paul shares the story of his conversion and calling. And what I hope for us this morning is that you will see in this passage is that Jesus confronts us in our sin and calls us to be his witnesses. Now this is Paul's testimony, but it is somewhat of an archetype for each of us who have converted to follow Christ, or who may be thinking about following Christ. No matter the specific circumstances of your own life, each one of us is a recognized enemy of Jesus, radically confronted by Jesus. And as believers, we are called to be redeemed witnesses for Jesus. As you read through the book of Acts, which I encourage you to do, especially as I'm reading through this sermon, I think it will give you a great uh, point of reference as we gather here each week. But you'll study or you'll find that in Acts, there in, in three different places, we read Paul's conversion story. Um, it's a very significant event for Christian history, especially within the early church. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce has said, no single event, apart from the Christ event itself, 
has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of Paul. So Paul, surrendering his life to Jesus and then carrying out that mission, totally changed the trajectory of the history of the church. It's why you and I, in a lot of ways, are here today. And so we have the conversion story here in Acts 22, in Paul's own words. Um, We read it again in chapter 26 as Paul gives a defense before King Agrippa. And in chapter 9, Luke narrates for us. He tells us about Saul. He tells, tells us about his life and then about this a moment really in the third person. And there's some different details that you uncover there, but the essence of the story is the same. So we find in verse 3 that uh, Paul explains who he is. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. Paul establishes what any local listener would want to know um, about uh, Paul on that day. They wanted to know where he was born, reared, and educated. You may be the same way. When you meet somebody, you think, I wonder where they're from. They're not from here, right? You know, or I wonder where they grew up. Uh, and so that was them. They wanted to know where is he from, where was he raised, and how, you know, how was he educated? Well, he says that his hometown is Tarsus of Cilicia. Now, this is a city that exists today. It's in modern-day Turkey on the southern end, very close to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, It's a pretty important city right there in that area. And that's where he was from. So he was an outsider in Jerusalem. He was born uh, as a part of the diaspora. He was not from Jerusalem. He was a Jew from a dispersed area. But he was speaking to them in their local dialect, the Hebrew dialect, the verse says, which was Aramaic. So this is their heart language, and they're thinking, huh, how is he speaking our language then? And he says, although he was born there and not in Jerusalem, he was raised in Jerusalem. In fact, before King Agrippa, he says he was raised in Jerusalem from a very young age. So that's where he grew up. And Paul says he was raised there, and so he is not some anti-temple, foreign-born Jew. He is a Jew who was raised in Jerusalem, and not only that, He was educated literally at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, the listeners there would have been very familiar with who Gamaliel was. He was a well-respected teacher. In fact, he was a very, uh, he was a legalist. He respected, he revered the law. And so, by identifying himself as a student of Gamaliel, Paul is signaling that his, uh, to his Jewish audience, that he was raised to be a Pharisee and an expert in the law. He's saying to the audience, I'm one of you. You think I'm an outsider. I'm one of you. So Paul identifies himself in this moment as a zealot for God. And his zeal was demonstrated in the way that he committed his life early on to put a stop to the spread of what was called the way. These were the people who followed Jesus. So he said, early on I committed to stop the way, to put them even to death. When Paul is speaking, he's referring back 20 years. Uh, he's re- referring back to a time 20 years ago when he was given letters to go, or given instructions to go and to find these uh, Jews who had escaped from Jerusalem and run off to Damascus and say, bring them home and let's put them on trial. So we know Paul openly admits that he killed innocent people, innocent men and women. He said he persecuted Christians to the death. We know he voted against Stephen. 
Even though he didn't participate in the stoning, he voted for him to be put to death. He tells us in Acts 8.3, or Luke tells us, that Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Paul was a clear enemy of the church. He then explains that he was given this commission to go and to bring back these uh, Jews who had run off to Damascus, who had converted or are now following the way. So this was a man who was determined to put a stop to the spread of Christianity. Have you ever considered how easy it is to identify the sin in certain people's lives? And maybe other people appear to be perfect. Uh, we do this a lot better in other people. We, we have a hard time seeing our own sin, but we can see the sins in other people, you know. And as a matter of fact, some of you do a really good job of this on Sunday. You know, you, you clean up, dress up, carry your Bible, put a smile on your face, and everybody thinks you've got everything under control, right? But we all know we wear masks, right? We all know that every single one of us walks in here this morning with baggage just below the surface. Now, people only identify by looking at the outward appearance. But the Scripture says God looks under the surface. He sees into the heart. Paul's sin was so obvious that it didn't take God to recognize it. We could recognize it. He threatened and brought those uh, harm to those who were following Jesus. In the face of God, that's what he's doing. He was unapologetic. His mission was to eradicate Christianity from the earth. It couldn't have been more obvious. His sin was just so blatant. <clears throat> but do you know it doesn't matter how obvious your sin is? Before you place your trust in Jesus, you are a recognized enemy of the cross. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins, in our trespasses, in our transgressions. We are dead in it. It can be a little sin or it can be a lot of sin. Uh, you can look at your sin and say it's a minor thing or it could be a major thing. We are still condemned by our sins no matter if it's big, small, a lot, or little. James points out that we can be perfect in every area and mess up in one spot and we're guilty of it all. He says in uh, James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Here's the good news, though. In order to receive God's grace, the only thing we need is to need it. In order to receive God's grace, we must only need it. God's free gift of grace is not for perfect people. It's not for people who've got it all together. It's not for people who can clean up, dress up, wear the small, small smile, and carry the Bible. It's for imperfect people. So Paul is the perfect candidate for God's grace. You know why? Because he needed it. And you need it, and I need it as well. I've been following the news about the hurricane and um, seeing some of the stories of the damage that was done. And I heard one story on WLTX yesterday about a man in Lexington. Maybe you saw the same story. The winds picked up and it peeled the roof of his mobile home off completely. And the reporter said that when she went to the scene, she was in awe because of all the people that had come to help. And she said they kept coming and they kept helping. And they took everything that he had and made sure it got to, it, to a place to be stored where it could stay dry. You know, it's nice to know that when you're in need, there are people who are ready to help. Well, when you need grace from God, you can know it's always available. 
It doesn't matter how good of a person one may be or presume to be. Without the grace of God, we are enemies of Jesus, every one of us. Now, most people run from their enemies, or maybe they set up defenses to protect against them. But what does Jesus do? He pursues and radically confronts those who would be considered his enemies. Paul goes into detail about how Jesus confronted him. He says that as he was on his way, approaching Damascus, it was noon. So it's the brightest time of the day. And all of a sudden, this blinding light comes out of nowhere. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's thinking, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And in verse 9, and those who were with me saw the light, to be sure but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. God is making sure that Paul knows that the voice he is hearing is speaking with authority. During the brightest part of the day, this intense light shows up. So you can imagine, I mean, how bright did the light have to be to outshine the sun at midday? And it's not just Paul who sees this, but those companions who are with him see the same thing. Now you remember, Paul is making a speech at this moment before um, his adversaries, before an antagonistic audience, that he's telling them this story. And they were Jews, and Paul was doing his best to show, I'm one of you. I'm with you. We're the same. We're in the same boat. And now he draws the distinction, right? Because he announces that Jesus is Lord. Well, that would be very different from what they believed. But that's what he says without spelling the words out completely, uh, you know, to avoid a riot. But that's what he says. He draws a distinction. And I think what Paul is trying to do is to say it is not impossible for one who claims to be a faithful Jew, to now claim Jesus as Lord. It must have been really difficult for somebody like Paul to accept that Jesus the Nazarene was Messiah, that Jesus was God's plan to save the world, that Jesus was God. It must have been just a very difficult thing for him to wrap his mind around because he believed Jesus was an imposter, right? He believed this guy was a a liar, and he created a following. And people were trying to change traditions and uprooting Judaism. And he thinks he's an imposter. And on his way to Damascus, he believes Jesus is dead and in the grave. That's what he believes about him. And now all of a sudden he's hearing the voice of Jesus. Jesus did not conform to what Paul would expect the Messiah to be. He didn't teach the things that Paul would expect the Messiah to teach. He didn't have the right status or career. But, you know, that was not really the conclusive argument um, uh, against uh, Jesus as Messiah for Paul. It wasn't just that he didn't match up with who he believed the Messiah to be. F.F. Bruce says that what sealed the deal for Paul was this. Jesus had been crucified. The Messiah crucified? That was a contradictory statement for somebody like Paul. In Deuteronomy 21-23, it says that anyone who's hung on a tree is accursed by God. So how can Jesus be the Messiah if in his death God is cursing him? The idea of Jesus as Messiah was a blasphemous thought to Paul. 
That's why he had no problem persecuting those who followed the way. So blinded and on the ground and hearing this voice from heaven calling to him, Paul knew he was under judgment. That's what was happening. He is lying here in judgment. He felt the conviction of being in the wrong. He did not try to cover up his sin. He didn't try to defend himself. He doesn't deny what he's done. He responds exactly like others who had converted uh, to follow Jesus, especially on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. He said, what shall I do, Lord? That's his question. He realizes something's up. I'm under judgment. What shall I do? The Lord calls us to give account for our sins. And the critical matter is how will we respond? You know, the answer is ultimately we must repent. That means we turn from whatever we've been following and we follow another path. We turn from what we've been doing and now we do something different. We repent. Paul, under judgment for his actions, he's blinded. It's a perfect picture of what spiritual judgment looks like. Chapter 9 tells us that Paul was blinded for three days. And so he's guilty. And do you know what Paul was guilty of? I want you to think about this for a second. What was Paul's sin? Paul's sin was he had zeal for God. Isn't that interesting? He was passionate about God. That was his major problem. And it was because the zeal he had for God was misdirected. It was misguided. My sons are huge football fans. And uh, as part of our preparation for the hurricane, we got all kinds of snacks, cleaned up the backyard, everything looks good, and we've got plenty of food now. Uh, but we also, I took the kids to the library to get some, uh, I'm a good dad, right? So I took them to the library, we got some movies and books, because we're going to be stuck inside, and I'm not going to deal with the fighting, okay? So movies and books, that's what we're going to get. Well, I can always count on Evan when we get to the library. He's going to go straight for the sports section, and he's going to pull out every book he can find that I'll allow him to bring home about facts and figures about football. And so he brought it home, even yesterday, they, or uh, whenever that was, Friday. Uh, he brought it home, and he's been reading it since. So this story's for Evan. Uh, Jim Marshall is remembered as, uh, for what some, most say, is the most embarrassing moment in NFL. Jim Marshall. He was a defensive end for the Vikings. And in 1964, the Vikings are playing the 49ers, and there's a fumble. And Jim Marshall recovers the fumble, and he runs with the ball 66 yards. He makes it to the end zone. He's so excited, he drops the ball in celebration. It rolls out of the end zone. Unfortunately, it was the wrong end zone. The 49ers scored in his run. They got a safety off of it. And so uh, I think that the Vikings went on to win. But that's what he's remembered for. Sometimes our passion can be misdirected. That was Paul. He was passionate for God but running in the wrong direction. Now all of a sudden Jesus, who Paul thought was dead, is confronting him in his sins. When you encounter Jesus and your sins are laid bare before him, the proper response to following him is to repent. It's to go the other direction. When the woman was caught in adultery, Jesus did not say, well, you just be you. After it was all over, he says, now you go and sin no more. That's the proper response when we come face to face with Jesus and our sin is laid bare. Do you feel conviction for sin this morning? You know, here's the good news. You don't have to perform to cover those sins up. 
He gives you grace to cover those sins. And like the converts on the day of Pentecost, or like Paul on the road to Damascus, you must ask, what shall I do, Lord? And the proper response is to repent. So Paul is blinded by the radiance of Jesus. He's led by the hand to Damascus, which is where he was initially headed. But now Jesus has totally changed his purpose for going there. And in verse 12 we read, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. And to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So Paul, recognized enemy of Jesus, radically confronted by Jesus. And now we see that Jesus is transforming him to be a redeemed witness for Jesus. So Paul explains he went to the house of Ananias. That's where he receives his sight back. It's both a physical healing and a spiritual healing. And Ananias articulates for him God's plan uh, for Paul in four different statements. First, Paul was to know his will. That's what it says in verse 14. You do, uh, he's appointed you to know his will. Now when you and I talk about knowing God's will, most of the time we're talking about decision making, right? You know, what, uh, where should I go to college? Uh, what major should I choose? Who should I marry? Uh, what uh, job should I take? Which house should we buy? God, what can we do with, what do you want me to do with this money I have? We think of God's will in terms of decision making. But to know God's will actually means to know his commands. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Paul thought he knew God. And he prided himself on keeping the law but it turned out he had been running in the wrong direction next Paul Ananias says Paul was to see the righteous one and then he is to hear an utterance from his mouth now this is a reference to the Messiah Ananias is saying you have been given a gift Paul you get to see Jesus see the Messiah and you get to hear his voice and Jesus says to him in that moment that he was uh, he had work arranged for Paul to do. He had picked out a career for Paul. Finally, the fourth statement, Ananias says in verse 15, For you will be a witness for him to all men and what you have seen of what you have seen and heard. So that's the career. Now, Paul does not go into detail at this point to his listeners. It's kind of a vague reference to the Gentiles. He says that in a few verses and stirs up the riot again. But he, he, uh, he, Paul had been radically saved. Now, we don't all have testimonies or salvation experiences like Paul, but we all do have the same calling. Whether we are radically saved like Paul on the road to Damascus, or maybe it was at Bible school when you were a child, the responsibility is the same, to be a witness. Ananias has this mild rebuke, or maybe it was just a simple question. He says, what are you waiting for? That's what he says to him. What are you waiting for? The version says, now, why do you delay? Ananias tells Paul to get up and be baptized. You know, some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, but you've never followed in believer's baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save us. The verse sounds like you get your sins washed away by being baptized, but the operative words are at the end of the verse 
when it says by calling on his name. That's how we get the washing away of our sins, by calling on his name. Well, some have never called on God in faith. Some have never been baptized. Did you know that some of you, I mean, excuse me, all of us have also been called to be a witness. And some of you have never been a witness for God. Paul was an ordinary man with faith in an extraordinary God. Ordinary man, but faith in an extraordinary God. The critical element is not the amount of faith, but it's the object of our faith. Imagine that Ananias and the other, disciples, uh, the other Christians thought Paul was the least likely to ever respond to the gospel. But here's the deal. We're all enemies of Jesus. And today, perhaps Jesus is confronting you or calling you into relationship with him. You don't have to do anything to earn your way into God's presence. It's simply by receiving God's free gift of salvation that comes by, uh, by grace through faith. And if you're already following Jesus, maybe God's calling you today to be a witness. Paul was a man who simply made himself available for God's purposes. Well, you can do the same thing. You don't have to be an expert on teaching the Bible. All you have to do is be an expert on telling what you've seen and what you've heard. That's what God is looking for from you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul and how the same message is here for us today. To ask, what are we waiting for? Lord, I pray that each of us would respond today as you speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to have an invitation. And here's, here's the question, what are you waiting for? Is God calling you to respond, to follow him? in uh, salvation, believer's baptism, to join the church. Well, that's what this time is for. I'll be down here waiting. Choir will be singing. You respond. I'm going to invite you to stand as our choir begins to sing.